This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name's Dan, for those of you who haven't met me, and I'm part of the staff team here at Seven, and I'm also helping to fill in for Claire and Owen, our lead pastors who are on sabbatical this summer. And today I'm starting a brand new series of talks that will be continuing right through the summer. And the series is called Encounters with God, Stories from the Old Testament. We have a lovely graphic that will be up on the website, and all of the things that I mention uh, during the talk, including resources and things, will be up on the website with this talk. But yes, in this series, we're going to be looking at how various people experience God in their time and context, and then asking what that can mean for us in our time and context today. And we'll also be trying to get a better understanding of the big story that they were part of, and how ultimately all of them pointed to Jesus. So different people from Seven, and a couple of guest speakers as well, will be speaking about their favorite Old Testament character. And I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament. It's about the first two-thirds of our Bible. Um, But if we're honest, quite a few of us tend to focus on the New Testament, because that's the bit about Jesus. And it's also a bit easier, isn't it? I mean, the Old Testament contains these long lists of genealogies, uh, includes quite a few rules and instructions, and it also includes some things that are quite difficult to interpret and understand, passages about violence and conquest and that kind of thing. So consciously or subconsciously, we can kind of veer towards the New Testament, but the truth is that the Old Testament is really important for understanding our faith, for understanding some of the background of the New Testament and of what we believe today. And also, it's full of really colorful characters. Not always good role models or people who got things right. In fact, most of the time, it's people who are really messed up. Um, And, you know, hopefully that means we can relate to them a little bit. People who had major flaws, but to whom God was faithful and who got to be part of his big story through human history. So alongside this series, we're also making some resources available, um, as I said, for either listening or reading through the Old Testament this summer. Uh, You can find a page on our website with these listed, including some great tips on how to get the most out of your reading or listening. And the advantage of listening, of course, is that you can do that while you do something else. So when you're walking to work, you can be listening to uh, the Bible read, when you're doing the washing up, etc. It's a little bit challenging to do that as you read. Um, But Byrne has also kindly created three different levels, three kind of options, uh, different intensities. So if you want to go for level one, it will be tracking along with the characters we speak about on these Sundays. So we'll let you know in advance who people are going to be speaking about and you know, recommend that you, you know, go, go ahead and read the story before the Sunday um, to kind of understand it and get the most out of it. Level two will be following some themes through the Old Testament, so a bit more reading and listening. Um, and then level three, for those of you who want to go big, is cover the whole Old Testament in the next three months. Now, that sounds pretty daunting, doesn't it? But actually, if you do it um, through listening, it's about 30 to 40 minutes of listening each day. So like one episode of a box set that you'd have to sacrifice in order to do that. So it's not ridiculous, and it's an invitation for you to consider. If you feel like that's something, this is part of the Bible that I haven't really dug into for a while, then, then please do think about that. Today, though, I'm going to start with the story of Ruth. And this is just a beautiful story about ordinary people and the way that God is present in the normal 
and sometimes difficult circumstances of their lives. I just love this book because it's not a spectacular book. Ruth is not a spectacular character. You know, there'll be others that are covered in this series who are kings and prophets and who do the most incredible things. But I'm drawn to the story of Ruth because it's a quiet story. It's a really down-to-earth story, but so full of the presence and the provision of God. It's a story of ordinary people just trying to live with loyalty and commitment, but where we see God's goodness and redemption in the midst of those things. So if you have a physical Bible, uh, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. You'll find it about a quarter of the way into the book. It's quite easy to miss because it's only four chapters long. If you have an app um, or uh, the Bible on your phone, I guess you find it by typing in Ruth. Uh, Hopefully that will come up. And because we don't have the words on screen today, I would recommend if you can pull it up on your phone, it will just help you to uh, enjoy the story more and track along as I speak. Uh, Yeah, but otherwise, kind of sit back, relax for the story, you know, kick back and just press the lever on the side of the chair and kick back. And why don't we just pray as we we look at that text together. Father God, we thank you for your word and we just give you this time and this space to speak into our hearts. Lord, we pray that as we read this story, that it would say something new to us today. And just for each person here, that we would hear your whisper would hear your voice as we follow the story of Ruth. Amen. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Depressing way to start a story, right? (laughs) Elimelech and his family move because of a famine, and then he and his sons all die, leaving his wife, Naomi, and their two daughters-in-law as widows. It's a tough start. But just to place it in the kind of context of what's happening, this took place, as the first verse says, in the days when the judges ruled. This was a really difficult period in Israel's history where there was no king, there was no main authority, and as it says at the end of the book of Judges, which is just before Ruth, people did what they pleased. That was kind of the defining feature of the time of the judges. People did as they pleased. And then every now and then, uh, a judge would be uh, kind of appointed by God, and he would come in and bring some kind of order. So you can picture it a little bit like the wild, wild west, you know, where all kinds of bad stuff is going on in these towns and villages. Every now and then, the sheriff comes into town and restores a little bit of order. And in the time... Uh, of the judges, the sheriffs were known as the judges. On top of that chaos, it's also a time of famine. And this family, Elimelech's family, can't see how God is going to meet their needs. So they decide to go to Moab, to the Moabites, who were their sworn enemies, to try and find food. And I've been to Moab, uh, which is in modern-day Jordan. Uh, That's where my family and I lived for a number of years. 
And I've been to Bethlehem, which is in Israel-Palestine. And I can tell you that they're really not that far away. You can actually see one from the other. If you look across the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley, uh, Moab is just at the top of the hills on the other side of that valley. So it's not that far, but it was a major decision for Elimelech or for any Israelite to, to go and join the Moabites because of the history and the relationship between these two peoples. They did not get on well. They were not on good terms. But Elimelech decides to move there, and over the course of a few years, the men of the family die. And the women are left alone. But this is where the story starts to get really interesting. Let's go back to verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, so things were better now in Bethlehem, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. But her two daughters-in-law, uh, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So she's kind of releasing them of any expectation that they should continue with her to Bethlehem in Judah, and that they should go back to Moab, where they were from. Um, She knows full well that life for a foreign widow in Judah is going to be very difficult. So she tries to persuade them to leave her. Uh, Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? I kind of hope not, because that would be weird. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And this is the first insight we get into Naomi's mindset, into how she's taken the suffering that she's endured. She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. Verse 14, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. So Orpah leaves and goes back to her people in Moab. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And now the most famous verse in the book of Ruth. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And just to prove that she's serious, she says, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, just a little bit determined, she stopped urging her. So Ruth shows this remarkable loyalty to Naomi. You know, being willing to leave everything that she knows and has grown up with, the chance of rebuilding her life in Moab in order to go with her mother-in-law. I think she must know that Naomi needs her. You know, that life is not going to be easy for Naomi as a widow back in Israel either. And she also must have seen something in Naomi and in her family that led her to make this remarkable commitment to Naomi and to her people and to her God. And we don't know what the reason is. I wish we knew more about the story and the relationship and what what God had done to kind of um, bring about this, this commitment. But it's definitely not half-hearted. 
She is all in, isn't she? And she persuades Naomi that she means business. She's coming. So verse 19, the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. So here we get a further insight into how Naomi is feeling and how she views God. She thinks God is against her or has abandoned her. She's just suffered so much and lost so much, and her conclusion is that God must hate her. Which raises an interesting question for us, I think. How do we deal with personal suffering? Do we lose heart? Do we give up when things aren't easy? Do we turn to self-pity? The longer I'm a follower of Jesus, the more important I think that it is that we have a good theology of suffering, that we have a belief that is able to withstand the fact that life can be pretty rubbish, pretty hard at times, and yet, which allows us to hold on to God and to his goodness, even if sometimes it's just by our fingertips, just said through gritted teeth. Um, a, a simple theology of suffering that I remember hearing when I was a teenager and which has kind of stuck with me is the opening words of a book called A Road Less Traveled. It's by an author called M. Scott Peck. And the book starts with three sentences, each of them with three words in them. Life is hard. Evil surrounds us. God gives grace. Life is hard. Evil surrounds us. God gives grace. And for Naomi, she had certainly felt the full weight of those first two sentences, those first two realities. But I think what probably holds her together, the way that God's grace appears to her in that time, was in the shape of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. So here they are back in Bethlehem. Naomi has this moment of pain and bitterness. And then they have to work out where they're going to find food. So chapter 2, verse 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech. Remember him? Naomi's husband. And this man's name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to your fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, to uh, summarize a little bit, Boaz is a man of good character, and he asks around a little bit about Ruth and finds out what she's done for Naomi, her loyalty towards Naomi, and he's really impressed with that. I guess her reputation has gone ahead of her. So he decides to make some special allowances for her to be able to collect barley from his field. Uh, which, by the way, was just obeying one of the teachings of the Torah, the Jewish law. God had instructed his people in Leviticus not to harvest 100% of the crop, but to leave some for the poor. And this just reflects God's constant concern for those on the margins and those who are without, which we see right through Scripture. So he makes this provision for gleaning, you know, which is going and collecting the, the grain from around the edge of the field, the leftovers, after the harvesters had done their job. So Boaz treats Ruth well. 
And I just wanted to note that. I think it's something worth paying attention to. He, he is a real hero in this story, Boaz. But like Ruth, he doesn't really do anything spectacular. He's just aware of other people's situations, of Ruth's situation. He sees other people and he treats them in the right way. He does the right thing consistently. That's it. That's Boaz's contribution towards this story, pretty much. So Ruth is happy about this. She reports back to Naomi, verse 19. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. So suddenly some of Naomi's faith in God is restored. And she added, that man is a close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. And that term guardian redeemer, or in other translations it says kinsman redeemer or family redeemer, is not a term we may be familiar with, but it was a cultural practice at the time where if the man in a family died and left behind a wife or children or land, it was somebody else in the family's responsibility, the family redeemer's responsibility, to marry the widow, to take on the land and to protect the family. So Naomi starts to hope that perhaps there may be a future for her family if Boaz will take responsibility for them. But rather than just waiting and trusting God to work things out, Naomi decides that they need to take things into their own hands a little bit. So in chapter 3, we find Naomi giving Ruth a plan to kind of create the circumstances where, would, where Boaz would take on this responsibility for them. So chapter 3, verse 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor and don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Seems like an odd set of requests, doesn't it? You know, get dressed in your best clothes, put on some nice perfume, and then go lie down at the feet of this man after he's finished eating and drinking. But commentators are quite divided on what is going on here, okay? So some go out of their way to say there is nothing sinister or sexual uh, intended by this act that Naomi asks Ruth to do. They say that Ruth lies down at the, the feet of this man like the servants would in submission. But others point out that the harvest festival was known to be a time of excessive drinking of alcohol. And for those of you who are not familiar, excessive drinking of alcohol can lead people to lose their inhibitions. And they can find themselves doing what they may not ordinarily do. So it's possible that Naomi is asking Ruth to, to go and seduce Boaz and that this is a kind of shortcut to try and get the outcome that she wants where Boaz agrees to marry Ruth and redeem the family. Maybe rather than waiting and trusting God, she sees an opportunity to kind of manipulate the situation a little bit and speed things up. But we are not sure, not 100% sure that that's what's going on. So let's just keep reading and see what actually happens. Verse 8 in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. <laughs> Who are you? he asked. 
I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Or some translations may say, take me under your wing or take me under your protective wing, since you are our guardian redeemer of our family. In other words, marry me and redeem our family. So this poor chap, I don't think he really stands a chance, does he? He's sleeping and something wakes him up. What could it be? Well, possibly the nice smell of uh, this woman who's uh, lying at his feet. And she's very direct. She's very bold. And she asks him to redeem her and her family by marrying her. Now, Boaz recognizes that this is not just something that will benefit Ruth, who's in front of him, but something that will benefit Naomi. And he remembers you know, Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. He actually thinks that Ruth could have chosen someone younger than him. You know, maybe he's kind of saying, you're a little bit out of my league. Um, so he's impressed with her selflessness and her commitment to Naomi, and he agrees to go ahead with this plan to, to redeem the family. But they need to wait until the next day, and then he'll go through the proper process and the ceremony with the town's elders. There is a little bit of a twist, a little bit of an obstacle in the way, because there's another family member who is closer to Naomi than he is, so is more eligible than him to redeem the family. But once again, Boaz is someone who does things the right way, who resists the shortcut that Naomi has set up and resists the temptation to take things into his own hands. So the next day, he goes to the city elders and he asks if the other man would like to redeem Naomi and her family, including Ruth. But when that other man realizes that as part of the deal to redeem Naomi and the land, he's going to have to marry Ruth the Moabite, the foreigner, he declines. And Boaz is able to step in. So Ruth and Boaz are married. Ruth gives birth to a son. And the story concludes with a beautiful scene of the family's restoration. And then, I think, a quite amazing ending. So skip to chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that sentence is an absolute bombshell to finish the story with. Because out of this quiet little story from these ordinary people, seemingly mundane events, comes Obed, who was the grandfather of King David, from whose line would come Jesus, the Messiah and the Savior of mankind. I just, I love this story. It just gives me so much hope that while people are plugging away and getting through life, God is at work in the background, weaving things together for good. And Ruth, what an unlikely member in Jesus' family tree, right? She's a complete outsider. She's a foreign widow. She's one of the enemy. And yet, by being faithful and committed, she was someone who ended up being woven into God's amazing story of redemption. She points towards Jesus because he's one of her 
descendants. But she also points towards Jesus because she gives up her home and all that she knows to be with the person who needs her. She sacrifices her own comfort for the sake of somebody else in a way that should remind us of the way that Jesus would give up all he has and lay down his life for others. Her commitment and faithfulness point us towards God's commitment and faithfulness to us. So what can we take away from this story today? What does it mean for us? Well, I just have two quick thoughts to finish with. The first is I think we can be encouraged that even though we often have no idea what God is doing or wants to do in our lives, he is at work. You know, it was only with hindsight that Ruth could have seen God's hand in the circumstances that were going on, particularly in the things that seemed like coincidences, you know, that they happened to go and pick barley in Boaz's field, and he happened to be a relative of Ruth, etc. It's only in hindsight that she could have seen that. And she has no idea that she would have a son who would lead to Jesus, right? Even when she died, she wouldn't have known that, or that we'd still be talking about her today. So God is at work in the mundane, ordinary details of our lives and some of the things that seem like coincidences too. And I don't know about you, but I find that really encouraging because there's plenty of times where life feels quite mundane, feels like I'm just plodding along, doing the same things, and sometimes wondering whether I should be somewhere else or doing something else. That sense of, is, you know, is my life meant to be about more than this? Have I missed something, God? But this story can encourage us today and help us to trust that God is working all things together for good, like it says in Romans chapter 8, even when we don't see it and even when we don't get it. The second thing uh, is that the story should challenge us, I think, and cause us to consider how much value we put on being faithful and committed. Not in a kind of legalistic or religious sense that would make any of us feel bad, but in a way that just values showing up, that values doing the right thing, that values treating people the right way, that values the unspectacular. I think our culture celebrates big personality and dramatic events, and even in church we can take some of that on and kind of tend to give focus to what's out of the ordinary, what's miraculous, what's incredible. But um, some of us were at the Vineyard uh, Leaders Conference in Nottingham recently, and one of the pastors from America called Steve Nicholson, a man with a lot of experience uh, of leading churches, said that he thinks some of the most important change that takes place in a church community is through what he calls mundane connectedness. Mundane connectedness. And I liked that phrase. It's people living in relationship and community over time, going through the highs and lows of life together, but with consistency and commitment to each other. I think that's one of the things I love, one of the beauties of community groups, of triplets, of the different rhythms that we have, is that they enable us to have those points of connection. And we commit to each other. You know, maybe just for a season. It's not always for a lifetime, but there's a sense of commitment. And it's not spectacular, is it? I mean, anyone who's part of our community group knows how unspectacular it is on many weeks. But there's that sense of mundane connectedness. We're sharing the highs and lows of life together. 
Jay Pathak, who uh, leads the vineyard in the United States, says, your commitments define who you become. So it's a good moment for us to ask ourselves, what are we committed to and how is that being demonstrated? Commitment is showing up consistently. And sometimes it's showing up when we don't feel like it. My guess is that if you speak to people serving on our teams this morning, some of them probably woke up excited and thought, yes, come on, I can't wait to go and run the sound desk and make this happen. But others probably didn't. Others probably got up and thought, I don't feel like this, but I've committed to it, and it's a way of serving my church family, and I'm going to do it. And I'm sure all of us are grateful that they did. And I think God, too, looks with favor on that and can use that willingness and that commitment. So may God help each of us to, first of all, trust that he's at work in our everyday and ordinary lives. And secondly, may he help us to live lives that are faithful and committed to the people and the things that matter. Can we stand and we'll finish just with a time of prayer?